one of the main things as we walk through Romans chapter 11, sort of ask ourselves, is who is at the heart of God's plans? Who is at the heart of God's plans? For the last couple chapters in Romans, chapters 9 and 10, Paul has been talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Why have the Jewish people not responded to the gospel in the way that it seems they should have? If this was God's culminating uh, work of salvation in Christ, why have the Jews not responded to Christ in the way that it seems they should have as God's people? Um, And so Paul has done the work in chapters 9 and 10 to explain why Israel has responded the way that they have immediately to the gospel in the just couple decades that Paul has been around, that the gospel has been clearly preached to the Jewish people, and that as it begins to be spread throughout the Roman Empire, and as Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, why are the Jews not always receptive to the gospel? And if they're not receptive to the gospel, maybe it's because they are no longer under God's sort of special plan. Are they no longer God's chosen people? Have they lost favor with God to the point that God is going to cut them off from his plan of salvation because of their response? Who is at the heart of God's plans now? Oh, you can do it either way if, if you need to turn them on or off, no, if it helps you. Turn these on, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's over there. Will it help you to see better? Yeah, one of them, one of them will work. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that is brighter up here now too. Um, so who is at the heart of God's plans? Who is at the heart of God's plans? So let's read Romans chapter eleven. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to read the different sections bit by bit because this is a long chapter. But we're going to see what we can do to go through the entire thing together today, so we can see it sort of as a cohesive unit. Um, and so I don't have to get into every single detail of uh, that can be had in Romans chapter 11. So Romans 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, 
And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans chapter 11. It is a long chapter with a lot of questions, and a lot of questions that most commentators do not agree on, and if they do agree in one place, they don't agree in another place. We're going to walk through it and just go over some of sort of the high-level things, and I am going to point out some lower-level things, get into some weeds, but not much, because I want us to see the overall picture of what Paul is talking about. And so back to his question in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? So God chose Abram. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we see that God chose Abram. Through Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. We now understand that blessing to be Christ. Through Abraham's line, or Abram's line, who he was later renamed Abraham, because he's the father of many nations, um, 
came Christ. Christ was a Jew. And so through Abraham came Christ. And Christ has now been a blessing to everybody. He has been offered not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so if the Jews, by and large, have not received the gospel, but many Gentiles have, does that mean then that God has no longer a place for Israel as his special people, as his elect people, as his chosen people? That's Paul's question. Has God rejected his people? And his answer is by no means. And he gives two examples as to why it has to be true that God has not forgotten his people Israel. The first one is himself, right? That's what he talks about. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So his first argument is no, because if you look at me, he hasn't forgotten all the Jews. Many Jews have not believed, yes, but there are some who have believed, including myself. And then he gives an example, his second example, not just himself. He gives one from the Old Testament of Elijah. So verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That means the people that he had chosen, the people of Israel, the nation. He has not completely forgotten them. He has not completely rejected them. Do you not know, he continues there in verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, Israel itself, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So Elijah, this is after, in 1 Kings 18, if you're not familiar with Elijah, he is one of the coolest prophets um, because he does some pretty amazing things um, in the Old Testament, and God... God does many amazing things through the life of Elijah is probably the better way to put that. Um, And so Elijah is in hiding when he says this to God. God, I'm the only one left who is following after you. I alone am left. The rest of Israel has turned against you. They have turned against your prophets. They have turned against your people. They have turned against the worship of you. I'm the only one left. This is after Elijah has called down fire from heaven to soak up water and to consume the sacrifice that he had prepared on Mount Carmel. And then he goes and kills hundreds of prophets of Baal. But Jezebel and Ahab don't like him. Jezebel really doesn't like him. And so she hunts him down. She is the queen. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, hunt him down. And so he's in the mountains hiding. He says, God, I'm the only one left. This is just all not how it's supposed to be. But what does God say to him in verse 4? I mean, he doesn't say it just in verse 4. He says it back in 1 Kings 19. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's reply to him is, look, you're not the only one left. And now... What's interesting is it's not just 7,000 people, it's 7,000 men. So it's really more than just 7,000 people. It also, I think, is just an interesting thing. If you're not familiar with how numbers work in the Bible, um, the numbers 7 and 1,000 are used oftentimes in the Bible, and they're signs of completion. And so I think, without trying to get too far into this, 
God has the perfect number of people that he has chosen. He has chosen exactly whom he has desired to choose. He has the right number of people still left to worship him. Elijah is not the only one. And God knew that Jezebel and Ahab and the rest of Israel would become apostate, that they would leave the worship of God, that they would worship Baal. God knew these things would happen. This did not catch him by surprise. God has kept these people reserved. That's what he says. I have kept for myself these 7,000 men, these ones who had, did not turn to worship Baal. He's kept them. And so I think it's interesting to say it's not just that he has chosen these 7,000 people, but he has kept them. And what does Paul say from this? Paul's argument from this is verse 5. So too, at the present time, so Paul's time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so you can go back to Paul himself is part of that remnant chosen by grace that God has saved, that God has justified by faith. And it is by grace. So this is not because these people deserved it. It's not because Paul deserved it. It's not because these other Jews that have believed did anything else, did anything distinct, did anything special that other Jews did not during Paul's time. If anything, it was just simply grace, which Paul has gone to great lengths in the first eight chapters of Romans to speak about again and again and again. It's by grace. God has always chosen a remnant of his people who trust him by grace. But if it is by grace, verse 6, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So how does God work? God works through grace. God will not be in your debt, and you cannot earn justification. But the problem with Israel, verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Why did they fail to obtain it? Well, that's what the end of chapter 9 talks about. It says they failed to obtain it because they thought that their works could produce it for them. They were depending on works, is what chapter 9 talks about, and then chapter 10 some. They failed to attain the righteousness that they were seeking because they thought it could be attained through works. But Israel failed to obtain it, even though it was right in front of them, right before them. Christ walked in their midst. He preached in their synagogues. He taught in the temple. He walked among them. He traveled to many different towns and cities all around Israel. He gave them signs and wonders. He did things that no one else had ever done. No one else had even thought to do. And his people rejected him. So, Paul continues on there in verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So, one of the things that I think is an interesting piece as you study Romans 11 on your own time, and even as we go through the rest of it today together, there are sort of two levels at work here of God's election, of God's choosing of people. God has corporately, as a nation, chosen Israel, and that election will never be taken away from them. 
not fully. There will always at least be a remnant of Jews who believe. We can still see that in our time. There are Messianic Jews, people, Jews who believe in the Messiah, who believe in Christ. So there's this corporate election that has happened, that happened in Genesis chapter 12. And this God will never take away. There's also sort of more of an individual election that happens of these individuals like Paul who believe. And the rest are hardened. Now, were they hardened before they even had a chance? No. That's what we've talked about the last few weeks. We talked about specifically last week. We talked about, are we responsible for how we respond to the gospel? For how we respond to God? Romans chapter 1, how Paul began much of the argument about God's wrath. God's wrath is coming because even though it was clear to all people on the earth, men, women, children, that there is a God, that his power, his divinity could be clearly perceived through the things that have been created. Instead, we've suppressed the truth. And so for much of Israel, because of their response to Jesus, they have been hardened. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. If you look at the example of the Bible as a whole, especially the Old Testament, one of the descriptions, I think this is interesting, one of the descriptions that you have of God toward his people, that God gives his people Israel, is that they are a stiff-necked people. Have you heard this before? God says, you stiff-necked generation, you know, or you stiff-necked people who will not believe, who refuse to believe in me, who refuse to trust me in this instance or that instance or any instance, really, they always, almost always, refuse to trust God. Now, he calls them a stiff-necked people, and what's interesting is, like, isn't that how you would define an animal like they worshipped when Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, getting God's law, what idol did they produce? A golden calf. Well, a golden calf has a pretty stout neck. It's stiff-necked. It will do what it wants to do until you absolutely make it. Right? So that's the idea of a stiff-necked people is they, will, they are aimed in one direction. And until you cut their legs out from under them or do everything in your power to cause them to go a different direction, they will always move in that one direction. And unfortunately for Israel, that one direction was almost never God, was almost never obedience to him, was almost never trusting him. That's why they're called a stiff-necked people. And so what God does is he gives them up to their sin, which is why one of the reasons the sin of the golden calf was so at the beginning of the foundation of the nation of Israel into the promised land, or what should have been the promised land, which had to wait for 40 years, God gives them up to be a stiff-necked people for the rest of their existence until Christ, and even until Christ. When Christ comes, they're still a stiff-necked people. They, they know what they know. This is supposed to be by works. And 
And it's not just Israel. I mean, we can look at Israel and say, wow, what complete failures. You know, like how can you turn away from a God who has been so gracious and merciful to you? But one of the things I think that we need to get from especially the rest of what we're about to read as non-Jews, as Gentiles, is all people are this way. The Jewish people are simply indicative of humans in general. We are all, each of us, stiff-necked people. The Gentiles also. We do what we want to do. We go the direction that we want to go. That seems most comfortable, most plausible, the simplest way, the most comfortable way. We each are like this. So before we get too ahead of ourselves and say, and be judgmental against Israel, we need to start looking inwardly and say, we too have been like this. God hardened them because they hardened themselves to the truth. Verse 9, David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap. The very thing that it seemed like should provide for them is what actually kept them from believing. A stumbling block and a retribution for them. Lest their eyes be darkened, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. They become slaves to the false things that they worship. So I ask, Paul says in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Which is sort of almost a repetition of our question in verse 1. By no means. What has happened now is not they have failed to believe, so now they're cut off from God. No, instead, what God has done is he has saved a remnant of Israel, and he will continue to save a remnant of Israel. But he has opened up the floodgates so that the gospel can be given and received by a multitude of Gentiles. Rather, he continues on there in verse 11, rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, Israel's trespass, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will will their full inclusion mean? So Israel has not believed, but God has opened the eyes of the Gentiles to see. He's opened the ears of the Gentiles to hear. And what it means, what their failure to grasp has become for us an opportunity to believe. And then he alludes to what he's going to get into in a few verses, where he says something about their full inclusion, where no longer will their hearts be hardened. No longer will their eyes be unable to see, speaking of Israel, their ears able to hear. Now, But before he gets there, verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Before we get to that, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So what Paul is doing is he is concerned and he is showing his concern and the concern that the Roman Gentiles should have for the Jews that they know Paul's concern, his heart, is that all would come to salvation. All would come to be justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, all those things. And so what happens is, 
the Gentiles have received justification. They have received salvation from God. And so when the Jews look at the Gentiles and they see the life that the Gentiles have, the way in which they are able to live, because their hearts have been changed, because the way that God has intended them to live by trusting him is actually, it looks like they're able to enjoy life. They don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the future. They no longer have these concerns about day-to-day things or concerns about eternal matters. So when the Jews look at the Gentiles and they see how the Gentiles' hearts have been changed, how they've been given a new heart, how they have been brought into the fold of the children of God, the Jews would look at it and they would say, Man, I I thought I knew the way that was right, but clearly they have understood it. And so I want what they have, which really was the same thing that the Jews were supposed to be doing for the Gentiles this entire time. The Jews were supposed to be that. They were supposed to say, look at how God has blessed us. Look at the way in which we are able to truly experience life now and life forever. But the Jews, by and large, failed to do that. They failed to be the witness, the light to the nations that they were called to be. And now the Gentiles, conversely, are in a position to have received the grace of God. And so then now the Jews, at least some of them, Paul is saying, at least now some of the Jews are able to look at the Gentiles and say, wow, I want what they have. There are many things that can be said about that fact, not just for a Jew looking at a Gentile, but for each of us individually. Have we truly understood God's grace in such a way that we are experiencing life in our own lives to the extent that people see us and they are jealous for what we have? They're jealous for the life that we are able to live in obedience to the God who has redeemed us, who has delivered us. Are people able to see that in us? Paul's heart was that, look, I'm not against the Jews. I'm not against these people who are unbelievers. But what I'm going to do and what I'm going to pray for is that God uses the reception of certain people around me to stir up in the hearts of others who are looking on to say, wow, they have something that I don't have. They have what I've been looking for and what I thought I could get on my own. Because still today, we as humans act the same way that the Gentiles and the Jews acted thousands of years ago. When Paul was writing this 2,000 years ago, we want to prove ourselves by our works. We want to earn what it is that can only be given. People don't believe the gospel because they can't earn it. Israel didn't believe the gospel because they couldn't earn it. They had no part to play other than submission 
to God's grace other than to say this is all God's doing. People today still want a piece of the works-based righteousness that has been around since the beginning of humans. But will they see in us, in our own lives, like Paul is writing about here, will they see in our own lives today that life that's really been living, that's really been given, granted to us as we live it out? So he's speaking to you Gentiles, nor somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, verse 14, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if their root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So Paul is talking to the Gentiles, and he says, look, let me give you this image. There's a tree. There's many branches coming off of this tree. Initially, the branches of this tree were the Jews, were the Jewish people. This is the picture that he's giving. But what's happened is, because of their unbelief, God has cut off many of them. This is some of the idea of the hardening. They have hardened themselves to the root. They have cut off the supply of grace that God was trying to give to them, but they they would not receive. They became dead, and God hardened them to the point where they could easily snap off. So God snapped them off and said, I've given you the opportunity, the chance to believe you have failed. Now I'm casting you aside, at least for a time. And instead, in your place, I'm going over here to this other tree, and I'm going to break off some of its branches, and I'm going to graft them in. I'm going to put them in your place. The grace that I was extending to you that you did not receive, I'm going to extend to these new wild branches, and they're going to receive it. So do all the Gentiles now believe? Well, we know that answer, no. Do all the Jews, are all the Jews cut off from God? No, we've already talked about that. So there's this mix now of Jew and Gentile that God has made in Christ. And the problem is, The Gentiles who have been grafted into the tree might say to the branches that have been cut off, Ha, you're no good. Look at how brown and dry you are. Look at how you have failed. But the problem with that, the pride that we might be inclined to feel, even as individual Christians among other non-Christians in this world, even as Gentiles among other Gentiles, to bring it back to like present day, is we might be inclined to say, wow, God really loves me. I probably deserve this. But that thinking just falls back into the whole age-old problem of works righteousness. You didn't do anything to deserve the grace that you've been given. And so before you get prideful and proud of the fact that God has saved you, that he has redeemed you, remember, 
This was not your own doing. You were just a branch. You were just sitting there on the side of the road on a tree that was being blown by the wind in West Texas because those things grow sideways. And God came and made you alive. He made you alive. He's the one who made you alive. So do not be arrogant toward the other branches. If you are, verse 18, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, this comes back to some of the overall picture of what we have to understand when we are studying Romans chapter 11. Paul is not, as I often try to read him as, talking to individuals. Paul is talking oftentimes about groups of people. Here, again, for the most part, in chapter 11, he is talking about Israel and non-Israel. Israel and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about groups of people. And so he's saying, hey, you group of Gentiles, you Gentile believers, don't get proud because at a certain point, if you are proud and you no longer continue in faith, if faith no longer means anything to you and to your people, at a certain point, God will cut off Gentiles. So beware, fear, be thankful for the fact that God has indeed offered you salvation and open up your eyes and ears to hear and to understand and to receive that salvation. Because there may be a time whenever he no longer opens up your eyes and ears to hear, where you fail to continue to believe, where you fail to have a heart that is grateful for God and the work that he has done to bring you into his family. And if you as a group of people become proud like Israel has to the point where you think it's because of who you are or what you've done, you are not that far away from God just cutting the Gentiles off like he has for much of Israel. So do not become proud, but fear. And he talks about the kindness and the severity of God. He is kind, but he is also severe. There, it, again, when you just read Romans, when you read Romans chapter 1, it doesn't take long to realize God is not just this pie-in-the-sky, lovey-dovey God. He has expectations on his creation. And when his creation turns their back on him, there is judgment to be had. There is wrath to deal with. God is a severe God. But he's not just severe. He is also loving. So yes, he is a loving God. He is gracious and merciful. 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so you have to pit these two realities together and never forget either one of them. Because just as he has cut off much of Israel, he has saved many of the Gentiles. And there's going to be a reversal of this. That itself was already a reversal. Israel had the prominent place as God's people, and the Gentiles did not as much. Now, Israel does not have that place, and Gentiles do. But just as that was reversed, so we can expect a future reversal again, back to the way that it was supposed to be. And so we'll just skip to verse 25 and beyond. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, I would argue, because let me tell you what some people believe when they read this. What many people believe, many commentators, um, and just to be clear, I don't know what the right answer is here. So I'm just going to tell you what I think. And so take it for what it's worth. But the fact that, and this is where I'm going to, from what I'm going to say, let me preface it with this. Never before has there been a time that I'm aware of where all of a certain group of people have fully believed in Christ or in God for salvation, for justification. And so it seems strange to me to believe that at some certain point in the future, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when all the Gentiles that God has opened up the nourishing root of his tree too, that at that point then all of Israel will be saved. It seems strange to me that all of a sudden God's going to save everybody. And so that's where I come back to what I said a couple weeks ago when we were studying Romans chapter 10. I'm not so sure that saved in this verse 26 means what we usually think of when we hear the word saved in our regular nomenclature. I don't think that it means all Israel will be justified by faith, because I think he would have said would be justified. So, in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. I think what it means is that all of whom God intends to justify will be justified, both in the Gentiles and in Israel, and all of those who previously might not have received the salvation, the deliverance from wrath that God promises those who call upon him, as we read in Romans chapter 10, there will no longer be those Jews who believe in Jesus who fail to call upon him as the Lord Jesus, and admit their belief amongst 
whoever is around them. They will not be ashamed to pronounce the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They will not be afraid to acknowledge him before men. They will call upon him. God will deliver them. And that's what and that's why I think, you know, when you when you think of saved as delivered from wrath, then he says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He will take away their desire to try and save face in front of their friends and family members. They will call upon Jesus without hesitation because they know that that is the best way to go. Verse 28, we'll keep going. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Again, in this language of election, I think he's talking about what he referenced at the beginning of chapter 9. I'll read it again. I think I've read it every week for the last several weeks. Verse 4 of chapter 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I think that's what he's referencing. God has chosen the nation of Israel, and that election, that choosing, will not be put aside. That is still the case. They are still God's people. So one of the questions that people have when they study Romans chapter 11 is whether or not the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. It's a very original name for theology. Has the church replaced Israel? So I think from this understanding of Romans chapter 11 and what we've seen so far in Romans, as I've argued, hopefully correctly, what we see is that this is talking about nationally, God has not forgotten his people. Israel is still and will continue to be Israel. The Jews will remain, and they will remain God's special chosen people. Now, by chosen, that or elected, as it says there again in verse 28, but as regards election, this does not equate to individual justification by faith for all of Israel. Because as we saw from Elijah's example himself and from God's response, I've kept for myself several thousand people. That means tens of thousands of people were not kept. So election of national Israel does not mean that Ahab and Jezebel were justified by faith, because I think clearly they were not. So not all of national Israel has been justified by faith, but they have been held in the past, in the present, and still will in the future be held in a special place in God's plan. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And again, what I read from chapter 9, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God has called them to be his people. Does that mean that they are actually justified by faith? 
No, there are, there have been millions, maybe billions of Jews throughout time that have not believed, that have not been justified by faith as the example of the scriptures give to us. As in our time, in Paul's time, in Old Testament times. But God still has a place for the nation of Israel. So the church, I think, has not replaced Israel. And here's what he says, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Again, this is the reversal again. So they too have now been disobedient in order that they by the mer- in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all this is again another verse where if we don't understand the language of what Paul is saying we can become universalists which means that well if it says he, God's going to have mercy on all so if God has mercy on all then we're all going to heaven then we're all justified by faith. Because he's talking about Jews and Gentiles in this context. He says, the Jews were disobedient, the Gentiles received mercy. Now it's going to switch and the Jews are going to receive mercy again. God has consigned all to disobedience. That means the different groups. The Gentiles he has consigned to disobedience originally and the Jews he chose So the Gentiles had their time of disobedience where they were not able to understand, where God was not specially calling them to be his people, where he had called instead Israel to be his people. Now, Israel has been consigned to disobedience and the Gentiles are the ones who have received mercy. So when you look at it as groups and not as individuals, it makes more sense and we're able to understand that this is not talking about God's going to have mercy on all and so every single person who's ever lived is going to be justified by faith and go to heaven. Because we know from the rest of the witness of Scripture that that is not true. We know from the witness of our own lives that how can that be true? For God has consigned both groups to disobedience that he might have mercy on both groups. Maybe that's another way to state that. That's Stephen's easy version. Verse 33, and we would be remiss if we didn't actually cover this, though it could probably have its own um, own sermon by itself. And this is where we get back to the question that I asked at the beginning to wrap this up. Who is at the heart of God's plans? Is it the Jews? Is it the Gentiles? Is it both? And the answer that I would give from Paul's letter here, from the end of chapter 11, is I would say neither. Who is at the heart of God's plans is God himself. Verse 33 and the rest of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
it can be easy to receive the justification and the righteousness that we need to be God's children and to become proud and to become self-centered and self-focused, like Paul has been talking about, even just prior to these verses, verses 33 through 36. And we can concentrate on the individuals. We can concentrate on me. But Paul goes through all this and he says, stop thinking about yourself because you're not the one who saved you. You're not the one who can save you in the end. You're not the one who has saved you in the past. You're not the one who's worked out all these things in past history. You're not the one who's working them out currently in history. You're not the one who's going to work them out in future history. God is the one who has been at work this entire time to do what he deems most suitable. He has worked in the way that he has meant to work. He has done things that he has meant to do. Who are we to look back at God and say, how dare you, was Paul's earlier argument in chapter 9. How can the clay say to the potter, you, you can't do that to me. How messed up is that? This piece of paper can't tell me what to do. And Paul says, so stop being so focused on you that you forget who has worked all of these things out and who has offered you this gift of righteousness, this mercy that you have received. Who is it from? Why did he give it to you? It's not because of your works. It's not because you were his best option. It's not because you did anything to deserve it. Not because you were going to do anything to deserve it. It is simply because God has his plans. And it is all about him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And so, one of the best things that we can leave this chapter with, especially when we come at it humbly and say, I have no idea if what I believe about what Paul has written are true in certain parts and these certain words, but what I do know is that God has a plan and that he is fulfilling that plan, that he has fulfilled it in Christ, and that he has offered me the gift of grace and mercy through faith in Christ. He's opened my eyes to see, my ears to hear, so that I have been able to understand. And so praise be to him. Not because of my ingenuity, not because of my wisdom, because of his. And so what we ought to be left with is an attitude of awe and wonder at the wisdom and the mercy of God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I can't understand what he's doing. This is a quote like from Job. When Job says, God, what have I done to deserve all of this? God, why have you treated me this way? God, 
what did I do to deserve these things happen to me? And God says, I ain't going to answer you. What do you know? Who can tell me what I should do and what I shouldn't do? You're nobody. But even still, that's the beauty of the gospel. Even still, God doesn't have that arrogant attitude toward us. He has shown himself to be gracious and merciful, to be wise in his dealings. And so walk away from Romans chapter 11 and from these chapters 9, 10, 11, thinking, wow, this is all about God. This isn't about me. And all I can have in response is an attitude, a heart of praise to the God who sent his son to die on the cross to take the wrath that was earned by me and instead give me an unearned righteousness. The righteousness that Christ himself earned is now put onto my account. Wow. How amazing is that? How wonderful is that truth? Let me praise the God who has worked in that way. And so I pray that we will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word for the truth that we have been able to look at in this most difficult chapter, I do pray that you would open our eyes to continue to see, keep our ears open to be able to continue to hear, that our hearts would be soft and receptive to your truth, that whenever a spirit of pride begins to dwell in us, that you would remove it that you would make it clear to us that we are trusting in ourselves. God, help us to never trust in ourselves. Help us to never focus on ourselves. Help us to forget about ourselves and to remember Christ, to trust him, to trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.